special edition of the World Game Live. It's fantastic to have your company. I'm your host, Lucy Zellich, and what a big moment this is for Australian football. Ladies and gentlemen, tuning in, we're delighted to have you with us because we are hoping we have everything possibly crossed uh, at this point now that Australia and New Zealand will secure the bid to host the 2022 FIFA Women's World Cup. We're so delighted to have the company of Football Federation Australia Chief Executive Officer James Johnson here with us. A special welcome to you, James. Thank you, Lucy. It's great to be uh, on, on your show and to be here with uh, yourself, Nick, and also Sam today. Yes, and you've introduced her there, Sam Lewis, a, a beloved friend of us here at the World Game and contributor to The Guardian, a women's football expert, but I'd just go as far to say football expert in general, Sam. It's a pleasure to see you and thank you for joining us on a special day. Thank you so much. It's always so fun to be here, but I am in incredibly nervous. <laughs> Stolich, I don't know how you're feeling at the moment. Welcome to you, uh, my friend. It's great to see you as always. But uh, nervousness, excitement, I'm sure it's all being blended into one at this point, isn't it? Yes, I am extremely nervous and excited. And that's just because of our guests and also because of our Wi-Fi. I'm really hoping the Wi-Fi holds out this week, <laughs> unlike previous weeks. Sorry about that. But I think it's good. I did a speed test before. Uh, good stuff. Um, James, I want to start with you, of course. We, we have to know what are the feelings and the sentiments like uh, back in the offices in Sydney of Football Federation Australia? How are you all feeling? Um, we, we're feeling excited here and I, I, you know, I want to take it beyond um, FFA. I think the Australian football community is, is, is feeling uh, excited. Um, I think people are feeling anxious um, and, and we should be because the way I see it is we're going into a, a final. We've got uh, one, one, one more team that we've got to play against and it's it's a global uh, competition um we do have a lot of work to do though we're certainly not being uh, complacent uh, we've got a lot of uh, phone calls to make uh, in the lead up to 11 p.m tonight when the fifa count council starts because we've moved into the more political part of the process now and and, and what we're really trying to do and what we've been doing um this whole time is really trying to convince the council members on the merits of the bid can you tell us a little bit more about how that actually works when you talk about obviously moving into the political sphere and, and what kind of phone calls you'd have to make to whom and, and, and what the discussions would entail? Yeah, so so there's really two parts. The first part was the, the, the bid evaluation report. So our focus was to make sure that we scored as high as possible in that report. And that was important and we did, we achieved that. Um, and that was important because that report is then used um, uh, by the FIFA council members who vote um, on the, 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 the eventual host um, as the basis for, for their discussion. Um, now that that process has finished, um, the, there's other issues that, that the, the council members will take into consideration, cultural languages, um, historical um, uh, football ties. This is all part of the process. So really what we're doing is we're, we're, we're speaking to each member we have been doing this for the past couple of months and really just explaining to them why we believe um, not only are we the best bid, but we believe we will host the best ever uh, Women's World Cup. The impact of Japan pulling out, James, what was your reaction to that? And how did that change your overall perception of where we were then positioned in this race? So I, I just want to start by acknowledging uh, the Japanese. They were um, they're very gracious. Um, and their position was um, you, you scored very high and we think you have a very good bid and we want to be united as Asia going in, in, into this bid. Um, so they've been fantastic. And since they've withdrawn, um, they have offered their support to, to our bid, which um, certainly strengthens our position. So um, 
you know, the Japanese, are, they're, they're good friends of Australian football. Um, they're a great football nation. To have their backing and to have the backing now of the AFC um, makes us feel uh, more confident going into this bid than what we would have if, uh, if the Japanese were still in it. Sam, you wrote a fantastic piece that you penned in The Guardian recently uh, and basically broke down the, the, the permutations of, of how the votes work, um, in, in which potential ways that the bid could fall over for us. Uh, you know, I note that Colombia were pretty unhappy with their bid evaluation score. In fact, they wrote to FIFA to try and have it overturned, but FIFA stood by their, their position on that. Uh, but what are your feelings around, um, you know, where we could get caught out if, if, if that indeed is something that we're staring down the barrel of? Well, we're talking about it now. It's politics. It's the politics of FIFA that I think is is really sort of hanging over us. And I think that's a big reason why so many of us in the community are so nervous is because we know we've been through this before. Everyone remembers what happened in 2010 when we tried to bid for the 2022 Men's World Cup. We got bit on the arse by politics. And at the moment with the news, particularly in the last 12 hours, sort of feels like some of that is still at play. Um, and one of the big problems, of course, is that a lot of the people who are going to be making these decisions, a lot of the FIFA council members who are voting, they don't really have a lot of skin in the women's game. They're usually representative of the men's game. And so the Women's World Cup is sort of used as a bit of a bargaining chip amongst confederations. Um, and I think that's sort of the big fear for us now is that even though we did score so brilliantly on the evaluation reports, it's almost as though that doesn't really matter. Um, so, you know, when we look across actually our evaluation report, we, we sort of, we, like we boss it in basically every category, particularly in comparison to Colombia and, you know, Colombia, their federation coming out and writing to FIFA and saying that they had problems with FIFA's pretty objective evaluation of their security in that complaint, they actually got some of their own stats wrong. Like, and so FIFA responded to that and said, well, no, we stand by what we discovered because it was a really thorough, really objective process. So given sort of that as well off the back of just what those bid evaluation reports actually found, it, it sort of makes, it would make Colombia winning even more shocking. And I feel like Australia and New Zealand would be extremely hard done by even more so than what we were 10 years ago. Mm. Stolich, over to you to ask James a few questions. Yeah, James, I just wanted to know, I think there's a bit of a misconception out there or just to clear something up um, in regards to some people believe that Colombia's bid could be favoured because it's in the same time zone as the the US, which is such a strong television market. Um, but my understanding is that actually commercially for FIFA, and obviously that's a big consideration for them, our bid is even stronger on that front. Yeah, so look, to, look when, when you're looking at any global competition that has global appeal, um, time zones do matter. Um, if you look at the Premier League at the moment, which is the, the, the biggest um, professional league that we have uh, in our sport, um, they're playing matches at, at, at noon um, because they're trying to tap into the morning in, in America time zone and also they're trying to get the evening um, in, in East Asia. So this, this is a reality. They are in a, a, an interesting time zone. This is, this is true. But what our bid delivers, Nick, is um, we, we believe we'll have more people that will be coming to matches uh, we think we can fill stadiums um, and obviously the amount of people that are in stadiums uh, creates a better atmosphere and that creates a better broad broadcast product and we think it'll 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 result in more eyeballs um, from all over the world watching our sport and we're, when we come to broadcast we also are in a good time zone we have indonesia we have china we have japan china and indonesia are two of the four 
or um, biggest countries in the world now. Um, so, so we will deliver a, a very uh, commercially successful competition for FIFA, and this was uh, outlined in the report where we uh, where we scored the highest on the commercial component. James, before we let you go, a couple of more questions. But um, you know, what impact could this potentially have on the growth of women's football and just for the game of football itself in Australia? Do you feel? Well, I think it would be timely. We, we've had a difficult um, six months. Um, it, it, it's been hard. Um, and we've had to stop football at all levels. Uh, football starting again now. And I think it would really give us uh, a lot of positive momentum for the game. Um, I think more specifically is it will help us achieve a 50-50 split of, of men and women participants. And we're hoping to get there by 2027. I think it will help um, FIFA as well. FIFA are trying to get to 60 million participants, women participants um, all over the world by 2026. And I think that's a policy objective of FIFA. And I think that our bid will deliver that because it is the best commercial bid um, and the best commercial bid will um, allow FIFA to invest more money into women's football and it will allow FFA to also invest more money into women's football. So I think uh, if we are successful, um, we're in for a very interesting um, three years leading up to the Women's World Cup bid in 2023. Well, we certainly hope that we are successful. We're all looking so forward to the announcement. Um, I want to, before we let you go, uh, congratulate you first and foremost. Uh, you touched on it there on how difficult it's been over the last six months for the A-League in particular, but for everybody within the football community observing everything that's been going on. I know that we in the media have also been quite hard on FFA and, and, and you know, the discussions that have been going on with Fox Sports, but I, I want to give you guys um, a big wrap and say well done on enduring this process, on, on getting to a point where you could get a deal over the line and that we will see the remainder of the games this season broadcast well into next season. So I want to say well done, James. I really do. And, and we mean that here because it's been tough for everybody. Lucy, that, that means the world to me coming from the world game. Um, that really does. I also want to say thank you to your colleague, Craig Foster, who's not on the line at the moment. Um, I was very saddened to hear that, that he's leaving SBS, but he's someone who uh, I personally have really enjoyed listening to for 18 years. Um, he's shaped a lot of my own thinking. He's brought a lot of intelligence into the Australian football debate. And I really want to acknowledge that and say that from FFA standpoint, uh, he will be missed. Oh, thank you so much. It's um, been a tough week. And I said that to you last night, actually. It was a very tough day yesterday, very emotional. But we know that Foz will still be around and he'll continue to do great things for us. James, I'm conscious of the time. We've got to let you go. But thank you so much for making the time to join us. We hope that we are celebrating with you and the entire football fraternity come tomorrow morning. So we look forward to uh, hearing the announcement and sharing in the good news. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks, Nick. And thanks, Sam. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Stolich, over to you uh, before they wrap up their uh, feed there. Um, you know, a lot to talk about out of this, of course. There is so much excitement. As Sam, you said uh, offline before we came on air, you're feeling quite terrified of, you know, the potential permutations of, of how this all unfolds. But um, Stolich, how are you feeling? I know you're nervous and excited, but um, where is the rational part of your mind leading you towards? I mean, ever since 2010, I've always been skeptical of FIFA and the deals that they do. And uh, I even uh, tweeted out when we got the technical report and Japan had dropped out, I said, do not underestimate Colombia. Because also, by the way, I think we would host a much better tournament than Colombia, but I don't think Colombia would be a bad place to host it. I think it could host a wonderful World Cup and we should, you know, respect uh, other countries that they can do great jobs and it can be a wonderful place as well. I have many friends from Colombia uh, and great football tradition, uh, but we would obviously be a better, like, 
the technical report shows that it would be a much better place. But you never know with FIFA. They gave the World Cup to Qatar. Qatar was absolutely last on that technical report back in 2010. Last, behind everyone. I think, like, if Surrey Hills had tried to bid for it, they would have done a better report. Like, it was ridiculous. So... I don't know. I, I'm very skeptical. I'm very nervous. Uh, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful as well of James Johnson's uh, experience within FIFA. He was there for five years. He knows how that works. I mean, and the fact that we have, you know, the entire Asian Football Confederation, that's got to help us as well. But until I see that Australia on that card, if they do it that way, uh, until then, I'm not going to be calm, basically. Sam, you alluded to this earlier, and I want to elaborate on that and get you to, uh, but uh, someone uh, over at The Guardian, Suzanne Rack, wrote a really good piece about, you know, the, the race and how it is a lot tighter than what we expected, saying the vote on Thursday or Friday morning our time to decide who hosts the 2023 Women's World Cup is believed to be tighter than expected after UEFA members of the FIFA Council were encouraged to back Colombia rather than the combined bid from Australia and New Zealand. Can you go into a bit more detail? about what this potentially means for us? Well, I mean, UEFA are sort of the big dogs when it comes to confederations in, in this sort of situation. Um, UEFA obviously have a huge amount of power. They have a huge amount of money. Um, and because of that, they are wanting to be quite strategic when it comes to these kinds of things. And their pretty historic partnership with South America, both being two, you know, very significant historic footballing nations, shouldn't be underestimated. The amount of money that South America can generate for world football is quite significant. Not saying that Asia can't do the same thing because obviously it can. The number of people, as James said before, the number of people in Asia is like whopping. It's, it's the sort of the untapped, I think, zone of world football. But that's that sort of doesn't really matter when it comes to these kinds of relationships and deals. Um, but the, the news in the last 12 hours that there are some people within UEFA, some of those FIFA council members who are thinking that Colombia is a better bet, I think it comes down to, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what the evaluation reports said. It doesn't matter that we would host a better tournament. It doesn't matter that we have better facilities objectively. It doesn't matter that we have more people coming to games. It doesn't matter that we're going to have, you know, a, a more sort of vibrant and diverse media surrounding it. None of that matters. What matters is what, what the knock-on effects are going to be into the future for the people who are going to be making the decisions. And I think that that's why everybody in Australia is so nervous is because, you know, like I said before, we've, we've been here and we, we know what it's like to draw the, the short straw in this situation. And it would, just be, it would just be devastating because when we sort of in hindsight, the bid that Australia put forward to host the Men's World Cup, you look at that video and it, it like everyone sort of has a, a pretty terrible moment when they see that animated kangaroo jumping around, you know, but <laughs> our, our bid for the women's world cup was, was excellent. And I was lucky enough to have a look at the video that FFA submitted to FIFA last week as their final sort of argument for why we should host it. It was super slick. It leaned into all of the good things that make Australia and New Zealand so vibrant and interesting it, lo it looked at culture and language and it looked at the role that football plays in bringing people together particularly at a difficult moment like this one not just in sport but in the whole world where we're all sort of distanced and detached from each other through COVID so we don't have the sort of stereotypes and the and the terrible colloquialisms that the men's world cup bid had 
But despite all of that, you know, as Nick said, we're still sceptical because these people in these decision-making positions have their own agendas. And I'm, I'm so I, I'm like, I, I don't really know what to say. And I'm sort of, I'm hesitant to, to sort of put all of my eggs into one basket because of all the developments that have happened in the past 12 hours. But, you know, if we don't, if we don't win it, it won't be because we wouldn't host the best tournament. We'll say that much. And can I also board something like that though Stolich before you ask your question I mean uh, you said it the best Sam in your piece in the Guardian um, and I encourage everybody to, to check it out because it's a really a fantastic breakdown of everything um, but uh, she said that you know FIFA is searching for atonement so when we reflect back to the announcement that was made to award the United bid which sees Canada Mexico and uh, the United States uh, host the tournament in 2026 the decision was largely based on the FIFA technical evaluation report so we're hoping that that trend continues but can they afford to have another screw up um, if they choose to go in Colombia's favour which as we've already discussed we know they rated the lowest on the FIFA bid evaluation report uh, you know and and that we Australia and New Zealand are the best place nations to host this thing I mean the fact that Sam's saying it doesn't matter about all of these things is crazy to me because these things should matter and you'd like to think that they matter Yes, you would, uh, but can they afford to do it? They can afford to do whatever they want because the sad thing is they have an incredible amount of power. There is no alternative football governing body that we can, okay, we're not going to be a part of FIFA. We're going to be a part of this new international football thing. FIFA is a one monopoly. It runs everything. There's nothing we can do about it. And that's why they were able to get away with giving it to Qatar in 2022 also 2018 russia russia was not considered the best bid either and it should be said and i think this is and it's a good point uh, that you made before sam but i think this is going to hurt us more because we actually weren't the best bid in 2010 for 2022 we weren't the best bid the usa was given the best technical bid in fact and as you say the video was pretty embarrassing we didn't sell it very well there was actually a lot of problems with our bids in terms of ground availability lots of issues right we weren't we, i still think we would have done a great job but if you were basing it just on a technical analysis, we were not the best bid. Now we are. So now it will hurt even more that everything is there. Like we have everything in line or everything for us to miss out. It would be ah, absolute heartbreaking. And if it's heartbreak at 2am is absolutely brutal. Let me tell you from experience. <laughs> Um, what I want to say, though, Sam, is that they have improved their transparency. And I'm not defending FIFA, but we've got to look at all, all sides of the, the coin here. And that they have basically started to make their votes public. Um, there's transparency around the bid evaluation reports. We're starting to see more because they are in need of, you know, a, a greater credibility since the aftermath of, of 2010 and that disaster. So will that help? Will that force them to try and err on the side of, of goodwill here? Yeah, I think it. I think it will play a role. Definitely, it played a role when the the 2026 um, Men's World Cup was awarded to the United bid. That was the first bid process that was sort of done through this new transparency rule, where all of the votes of all of the members would be made public. So, where when it came to Qatar and Russia, all of those votes were secret, and nobody has really been held accountable for any of that. We've never actually known. Yeah, exactly. We've never actually known who voted for who. But the that these two World Cups. Uh, are now the first that are actually going to be out in the open and you would hope that that sort of public pressure is going to not force the hand but that some of the FIFA council members are going to seriously consider 
the optics of their votes as well and the way that it could look to the rest of the world if they vote for a bid that is objectively not suitable for this kind of competition. Um, but, you know, again, everything comes with a caveat. Everything comes with an asterisk when it comes to FIFA. Um, as Nick said, it's it, like there is no alternative. What, what they say goes. But also I think it's important to note that when we talk about FIFA, we're not just talking about FIFA. We're talking about the confederations who are part of FIFA. And these confederations have their own agendas. They have their own politics. They have their own desires. And so, you know, presumably when FIFA through Gianni Infantino come to the table to vote tonight, um, they will probably vote for us because their technical evaluation report was produced by them and they don't want to be seen to be going back on what they themselves said about our bid. But that almost doesn't really matter because it's not people only have one vote in this. It's the confederations voting as blocks or voting in a split sort of a split system that is going to determine who wins. So, you know, it's, it's all well and good to sort of throw stones at FIFA, but there are other confederations and other people in positions who also need to be held accountable. Um, I just want to also ask how much it helps now that this particular bid versus the bid that we put forward in 2020 is more commercially viable in the eyes of FIFA, i.e. we've offered $75 million in government funding and support to help us get over the line, whereas I know that back when Japan was still in the running, I think they hadn't offered any money and at the time they'd said, well, if we are awarded the bid, then we will seek to get additional government funding at that time. I mean, you know, does, does this help? Because we know that money talks and money is the uh, the international language uh, spoken over at FIFA so I'm wondering if that will help us get over the line. Yeah it absolutely will I think coming down if we were to sort of try and highlight the the key aspects of the two bids that are going to sway this vote that I think the commercial aspect is going to be enormous. The fact that Australia New Zealand is the only bid that has guaranteed government investment is a huge deal. Colombia's government doesn't really give a crap about women's football. Um, they have a, really no interest in what they've been trying to put forward. And we saw with Japan as well, and even, even a country like Japan, their government was still a little bit sceptical about investing in this. But having two governments of two confederations guaranteed to invest over $70 million into this kind of a, a bid is is huge and you also have to think about the fact that FIFA is in a position in a sort of a post-COVID world where it's needing to recoup a lot of money that it's been spending to try and keep the game afloat elsewhere mm -hmm. so the commercial prospects that we offer in terms of that in terms of actually helping FIFA to continue to grow the game in a post-COVID world is really important. And, you know, even though I think one of Colombia's biggest strengths, as was mentioned previously, is its television market because of its time zone, our time zone is huge as well. We have the entirety of Asia and not just sort of one particular time zone, we have multiple time zones because we're across two different countries. So the, the market that, or the markets that, that that open up, that opens up is, is enormous. And so if we're able to tap into that and really show that that's a possibility, like the commercial possibilities of this bid are just like, they're, they're incredible and you can't, and like in FIFA and the, the people who are involved in making this vote can't look at our commercial prospects and say, that's not going to be worth it because it is. Mm. Um, I want to defer to the people here. It's great to have your company for those of you joining us. It is the day of the decision. We are so excited here at SBS, but more broadly, the entire football community. And in fact, the entire nation should be delighted at the prospect of us hosting the Women's uh, FIFA World Cup in 2023. Um, 
I want to ask this to you, Stolage. AD Brooks has written in. Good afternoon to you, AD. She says, do you think that FIFA, the FFA, sorry, has done enough to promote this bid? Uh, you can always do more for sure. Um, but I think they have done a pretty good job. Um, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do on top of all the other things that they've had to do as well. This isn't just been a normal time where you've been able to focus all your resources. I mean, the fact that James Johnson himself has only come in recently, I think within 12 months or something, he's only been there. It's tough, but I think the people who've been working on the bid have done really well. And some of them we know behind the scenes, some of them whose names you won't hear, but they've been working really hard for many years now. Um, but yeah, I think if we look at it, like we've done everything we can almost, you know, the technical report was very good. Our governments, like you say, are both involved, you know, the football community feels like it's really behind it in a way that it's not in Colombia, for example. I was reading um, the newspaper over in Colombia and a lot of people were saying that actually right now is not the time that they want to host the tournament because their economy is struggling a lot. And it's not something that, you know, in a time of, and, you know, we know that our economy is having its issues, but nowhere near the scale that Colombia is having. And it's a time when, you know, when you can't feed your children or pay for your house, you're not going to worry about hosting a football tournament, men's or women's or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's so they have their priorities. So again, from every aspect, we should be winning this bid. We should be winning this bid from every single aspect. But again, I would, I want, I don't want to bet on it. You know, I would not want to, fingers crossed, but oof, oof, I'm nervous. Yeah. Um, uh, another question coming through from Pierre Sitter. Question, will they consider COVID in that bid, i.e. ability to recover? Sam, I'll pose that one to you. I, I think they have to. Yeah, I think they have to, particularly given the commercial aspects of the, the evaluation reports are so strong. Um, you know, when, when you break down the, the evaluation report, 70% of the report goes towards infrastructure and 30% goes towards the commercial opportunities. But given that the world, you know, money makes the world turn, I think a lot of the council members are going to be looking at the commercial possibilities of that. The fact that Australia and New Zealand, as Nick says, have actually dealt pretty well with COVID and with the sort of the, the economic fallout from COVID is, is, is really important. Um, and... Uh, I mean, again, I'm sort of, I just feel like we're sort of reiterating the same points, right? Like we're, we're like, we can do all of this. We're able to do all of this. Um, and I've, I've completely forgotten what the question was. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> will COVID have an impact? Um, you know, will that be factored into the decision? Oh, around yes. And, and what I was going to say in terms of that as well is that the video that FFA submitted, it started with a couple of minutes, which which sort of gestured towards the, the moment that the world is currently experiencing. So they hired in you know, football, Australian football's favourite Ben Coogan to, to put together um, some sort of visual storytelling, basically. And it opens by talking about the fact that the world is at the moment feeling like it's in a moment of silence it's it's we're all so distant from each other because of covid it feels like everything is fractured and separate from each other but football is one of those unique spaces that is able to bring people together 
And I think that the that sort of symbolism is is going to play on the minds of some of the FIFA council members because this is something that they're all experiencing as well. You know, this is going to be the first ever virtual vote for a World Cup bid. All of the people who are going to be voting are voting from their own homes because of social distancing rules. So I think that having like tapping into that and and sort of explaining why football matters on a broader cultural sort of social economic political level I think is really powerful. Also limits the opportunities to pass any brown paper bags underneath the table too while they're um, a couple of <laughs> They can transfer now they can just transfer it on the phone. <laughs> That's right the electronic funds transfer. A couple of questions coming through I saw Aleg memes asking about where the final is going to be. The final is actually going to be hosted in Sydney my understanding is with the opening game to take place in New Zealand. Um, you know there's no more than three hours of travel time between each venue which is fantastic as well when you consider that in the grand scheme of things but Solish you and I spoke about something quite interesting yesterday and it was something that we were considering posing to James but we had a limited window with him um, and the legacy that we're hoping to, to achieve post the Women's World Cup because it's always about wanting to maximize and leverage as much as you possibly can off such a special tournament and see it used uh, you know in a good way following the on from that and I mean we learned some horrible um, you know truths after Brazil of course so many empty stadiums over there I mean never mind the human rights issues that we've discussed around the Qatar bid and of course even around Brazil at that time but you know what legacy could we achieve here in Australia post the Women's World Cup bid if we secure it? A fantastic one. And that has to be one of the big priorities because we talk about obviously hosting a World Cup is going to be a fantastic month. And like it was, you know, when we hosted the 2015 Men's Asian Cup, that was a great month. But what legacy did we really get out of that? You know, did we make inroads with the Asian football communities within Australia? Did, were, were they turning up at A-League games and Socceroo games and all that? Did we really make the most of it? Did we really make the most of government, uh, you know, working with uh, governments around Asia and we might have we might have done kind of in the halls of power in the AFC I don't know but at least externally I didn't feel like we made the most of that legacy it was again it was a great month we won on home soil fantastic but then it just kind of ended and there wasn't really I don't know what the big legacy out of that is so I think it's super important I mean you know we're all living in Sydney now and you can still see some of the legacy of the 2000 Olympics whether it's infrastructure whether it's you know swimming pools that have been built there's a massive Ian Thorpe Aquatic Centre and all this type of thing so I think it's super important that we make the most out of it and what I would love to see is that it massively helps grow the W League, that it massively helps grow participation in not men's and women's football grassroots, massively helps improve government funding and access to government funding as well. And really, it could propel football, again, to be the number one sport. Well, I mean, we're already number one in participants, but just the number one in general interest. It could massively help with that. What are some of the projected um, side effects of hosting the Women's World Cup here in Australia uh, for you, Sam? What do you think? Where could this take the women's game? Where could it take football more broadly? How do you see it playing out? It would be, it would be monumental hosting it here, honestly. I mean, Nick sort of started to tap into it in terms of the legacy that it could leave. Um, you know, one of the, I, I just sort of wanted to address that as well, is that one of the things that FIFA included in their technical report was the legacy of infrastructure. They're actually considering this now after Brazil, after all of these white elephant stadiums were built and they're not used anymore. We don't have the, the risk of that here because we are a sporting nation. We are the sporting nation of the world. All of the things that we have already established for the Olympics, for Commonwealth Games, for Asian Cups, they've all been used. They've constantly been used. And all of that accumulates and builds on each other so that, you know, we present to the world 
an incredibly um, vibrant and incredibly welcoming sporting community. So I think that that is going to, like that sort of history that we already have is just going to further skyrocket. But in terms of women's football, it's, it's sort of the moment that we have been wanting for a really long time. I think a lot of people in the community were hoping that when the Matildas won the Asian Cup in 2010, that we would see this huge boost of enthusiasm, interest, not just from grassroots perspectives, but from the media, from professional leagues, all that sort of thing. But it didn't happen. But women's sport in the world at the moment is, is, is poised for something like this. We saw what happened in 2019 at the Women's World Cup with over a billion people tuning in to watch it. There is a market out there for women's football and we just need to be able to bring it to them. And the, But the thing that I think matters most to me is that there is going to be an entire generation of people who are going to experience their football moments with the Women's World Cup. We've all had a football moment. I remember mine was in 2005, watching the Socceroos qualify for the World Cup for the first time in over three decades. I remember the sound of the, the penalty hitting Mark Schwartz's glove. I remember where I was sitting in my room. I was allowed to stay up late to watch it. That was my football moment. And there's going to be an entire generation of young people who experience their football moment, who become lifelong fans and stakeholders and investors in our game because of the Women's World Cup. Mm. It could change the landscape, not just for football, but for the entirety of women's sport in Australia forever. Mm. What a beautiful way to summarise it. Um, off the back of that, Stolich, what's your football moment? Oh, my football moment. My football moment was the first game I ever went to actually was the Sydney 2000 Olympics and it was Spain v Chile. Uh, Chile won. And that, you know, I was so lucky. The first game I ever watched, Xavi, Puyol, uh, Casillas, Ivan Zamorano was playing. Like I was an eight-year-old kid just like, well, this is crazy. But also mm -hmm. one of the things I clearly remember, and I think this is an important thing to say, the passion from the Chilean fans that day, the Chilean community from all over Australia, but I think especially in Melbourne, they came and it was the first time because I'd been to other sports, but I'd never seen like proper football fans. You know, I didn't come from a football family and the way they chanted, I was in, as enthralled with the fans as I was with the action on the pitch and the way that they had their big tifu going, going over them and all that thing. It was incredible for me to see. And it made me fall in love with the game there and then. So I think it shows that there's two things. When you, when you have a tournament like that, whether it be the Olympics, whether it be the World Cup, a lot of people are going to come to the tournament who maybe necessarily wouldn't go to an A-League game. They maybe are attending football for the first time as a kid or even as an adult bringing their kid. And they are going to fall in love with not only what happens on the pitch and watching the Matildas and watching the great teams play, whether it be the USA, Brazil, Japan, you know, Holland, whoever, watching these great plays, but also with the atmosphere that football can generate, which does not happen in any other sport. Mm. Uh, a couple of people writing in John Kennedy love the passion and emotion from Sam Julie Lenton oh my god Sam you've given me chills the sound of Schwartz's glove it's just, <laughs> and, I, and it, as soon as you said it your mind is transported back to that moment isn't it um my football moment actually started when I was six years old when Ned um there's a sizable age gap between the two of us um I was clearly an accident but a happy one my mother would say some might be <laughs> watching this today um but uh, my football moment was when I was six and Ned had scored those two goals to, to have the Aussies qualify for the Olympics at that time. And I, and I just remember waking up because I, I wasn't watching it, right? I was, you know, it was in the middle of the night and I just heard all Supporting these... Supporting the family. 
supporting the family. I was six years old. What did I know? <laughs> I heard all these screams and yelling and crying. And I woke up and I remember walking into the, li- the living room. I could cry now thinking about it, all bleary-eyed and thinking what's just happened and seeing the emotion and the ecstasy splashed across the faces of my family members um, and recognising then and there that, okay, this moment was involving our brother, my parents, their son, but it was the emotion that was evoked from the game of football. And that's what it does. And that's what I think, you know, a lot of the people that say outside of the football community that haven't gleaned what the, the you know, the potential side effects of, of hosting a tournament of this magnitude could mean for us, they, they've failed to, to, to capture that and to understand what it truly does mean for us. But, um, you know, where could it catapult football, do you feel? I mean, Stolich, you said that, uh, you know, you feel as though we, it could make us the number one sport. But do you see that, Sam, or is it a lofty ambition? I do see it. And I see it because we have the most people playing it at grassroots level. That shows that there is a, a deep interest in the game of football at, in, in Australia and in New Zealand. The problem and the golden question that we have always been trying to answer is how we can convert that interest and that participation into actual investors and stakeholders in the professional leagues because that's sort of how we sustain the game here we need to have an economy that's built around a culture of football and so trying to find a way to connect that pyramid is paramount and I think that's one of the big things that FFA are working on at the moment is finding ways to better bring together that pyramid to bring together the entire community to ensure that we're a self-sustaining entity And I think one of the great things about James Johnson coming in is that he said something really refreshing the other day, which is that we shouldn't be focusing on other sports. We shouldn't be trying to compare ourselves to other codes because we are the world game. We are the game that everybody loves and plays here. If we can focus on ourselves and play to our strengths, it's it's going to pay off because it has to. That is the way that this works. And, but hosting a Women's World Cup, in terms of growing the professional leagues, I mean, the W League is an extremely underutilised competition considering what it is. It's still semi-professional. It still only runs for a couple of months per year. But the fact that we have produced a golden generation of Matildas who, when they get to 2023, could possibly be in a position to win a World Cup, possibly on home soil, because the majority of them are going to be at their peak, we need to have some more, much more focus, much more investment on the W League, which produced them. Because Sam Kerr started in the W League when she was 15. A lot of people forget that all of these Matildas started in the W League. This, is, this was their springboard. And we need to make sure that we have the, the structures and pathways in place so that this golden generation is not the golden generation when we talk about the Socceroos, something of the past, something that we have been trying to get back to for generations. We need to ensure that we continue producing players. And we're seeing through players like Ellie Carpenter, who is 20 years old and has just signed for the biggest women's football club on the planet. We have the talent here. It's amazing. We have the talent. We just need to have the structures in place to find them and to to, to nurture them, to produce them, to send them off to the biggest clubs in the world. That's fine. But if we can position ourselves to become a league like your Germany's, for example, which is a development league, but it's still incredibly thrilling, incredibly important and lucrative and everybody wants to be involved. And it has one of the biggest fan communities, one of the most interesting and most vibrant fan communities in all of world sport. 
this is these are the kinds of things that this could be and for women's football when like domestically in terms of the leagues we don't have the, the anywhere near the same number of leagues that we're competing with in terms of eyeballs and in terms of players really there's only probably five or six other like top domestic leagues around the world that we're on a similar sort of a level with so if we can stay in step with them and we can tap into the markets particularly of asia and the pacific and become a development pathway for women and girls in australia and new zealand and the surrounding neighbors we could become we could become world champions within the next couple of years well, we are hoping for that. Uh, a couple of comments coming through. Adrian Michaels, first football moment, Marconi versus St. George at Marconi Oval. Johnny, as in Johnny Warren, captain of Saints. Ray Richards, captain of Marconi. Wow, what an error that was. Uh, Alan Martich via Facebook. Good afternoon to you. Alan, UEFA playing politics with the voting. I'm not confident that the voting will go our way. Oh, scary stuff. I want to um, pick up on something that, um, that Sam was talking about there and the fact that we have been able to produce this golden generation of Matildas and these footballers, these young girls who are achieving great things and now going off to, as Sam pointed out there, um, you know, the biggest club in women's football over at Lyon, which is just huge for Ellie. Um, and I don't think Ellie is, is fully tapped into the potential that she has. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how she evolves as a footballer while she's over there. But it's incredible that we have been able to do this stolage and produce these players in spite of the fact that we haven't really given them the resources that they deserve and that we also haven't given them a domestic competition that befits their talents and that would set them up to either stay here in Australia on a longer-term basis or springboard them overseas, maybe even at an earlier rate. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it shows you how much further we could go. You know, if we can if we can have a player playing for Lyon at 20, we can have, and we start to really put in serious money, then we, yeah, we can be world champions. I mean, we are not that far away from being world champions. So, you know, I th- and I think that's such, it's such an amazing thing to see, like, even and obviously sam you'll be able to speak to this better but just the evolution of football from the fact that in like 99 2000 the matildas weren't paid they were given hand-me-down like training gear from the socceroos to wear and that kind of thing to go forward you know to 2010 where they win the asian cup but let's be honest it was kind of the mainstream media didn't really care it was a little bit on the abc and that was it and this was the first time that we'd ever won in asia it was a historic achievement it's something listen it's it's yeah, again, all these other sports, AFLW, all this stuff, you can't compete because it's not an international competition. It's not played internationally. They did that, and still, it was it was a great boost, but it wasn't received in the same way that the Matildas are now. And now, if we win this, and we could potentially be like, the Women's World Cup for that month, will be the biggest sport thing in Australia for that month if it comes to Australia and we host it. So just what an incredible thing to have these players, like you say, playing for the biggest clubs in the world, Lyon, Chelsea, Arsenal, um, Atletico Madrid as well. All these clubs, it's been an incredible journey. Yeah, it's been an incredible journey of of just in that 20, 20 year span. How much further can we go in 20 years if we play it right? I couldn't agree more. Sam, I, I want to switch gears slightly before we sort of wrap up on the Women's World Cup bit and, and defer back to the conversation that I had with James and commending him over the last six months within Australian football because it has been a hugely challenging time. I know that we at the World Game and other various outlets were reporting quite vigorously uh, on the state of the negotiations between FFA and Fox Sports. A lot of unfavourable things coming out. It looked like for a period there that Fox was set to walk away, that they wanted nothing to do with the A-League. They were stripping all of their content from their platforms. Uh, you know, I had in fact broken a story which uh, showed that uh, Fox had offered $11 million a season for the remainder of their contract 
which expires in 2023. Um, you know, we could all have been forgiven during this period of time for thinking that the game was on the cusp of insolvency and that we were headed for some serious uh, trouble. But uh, they managed to turn it around. And I congratulated James Johnson on that because I think that, uh, you know, he, he certainly deserves it. He was at the forefront of the negotiations and the discussions. And uh, well done to them for being able to turn it around because now we're in a scenario where, as I said earlier, the remainder of this season will have the games broadcast as well as the, the next season. And I think there are discussions around what they could potentially do for the remainder of their contract. But in the short term and for the next season, at least, we know we have a broadcaster that's committed to showing the game. Um, what were your thoughts around sort of the last sort of six months during the pandemic with the A-League uh, specifically and also with the, the contention surrounding the broadcasting negotiations? I mean, how nice is it to have a football person making decisions about Australian football? You know, this is a guy who comes from football. He, he loves football. He has played it since he was a kid. He represented our youth national teams. He's worked in all sorts of different areas of football. And he's come to Australia. And in the, the six months that he's been here, it, it feels like we're, we've been on, put on a completely different path to the one that we were going down at the end of last year. And you just need to look at some of the decisions that he's made and some of the, the power that he holds as a result of all of his experience. For example, the fact that we were able to move the Matilda's Olympic qualifiers at such short notice when they were meant to be played in Wuhan in China and being able to wrangle that and to bring that tournament to Sydney and to be able to play those games the way that they were played and to attract the number of people that they attracted, to put that on within the space of a week and a half is extraordinary. And uh, like I, it just sort of feels like there is a bit of a turn of the tide happening in terms of not just in terms of governance, but also in terms of our community, where we're actually starting to see that this is what football can be like. This is what things could look like if we actually have people who know football, who love football, making decisions for football. So I'm in terms of like, regardless of if we win the bid, I'm, I'm actually really optimistic about the future of the game here with, with someone like James at the helm because he, he absolutely understands the landscape and he understands Australia's position in that landscape. He knows that what our strengths are, he knows what our weaknesses are and he knows where we need to sit in terms of the global community because this is the world game and we need, to be, we need to accept the fact that we're not a big hitter but we still have plenty to offer. So having someone like that there is incredibly important and we're already seeing how much of a role he's been playing, particularly when it comes to these broadcast negotiations. The fact, for example, that the W League has been included in this new deal is really significant because I think there was a real risk that the W League could have had its coverage cut um, as a result of this reduced broadcast budget. But James being there, being in that room, knowing the importance of the visibility of women footballers at the moment with a bid on the table and possibly with a bid but with us hosting a World Cup in two years' time, knowing the importance of broadcasting that competition shows that he knows what he's doing and that he has long-term visions and he has long-term plans for the game here. So, again, regardless of if we win the bid, I'm really hopeful that football itself is going to continue to grow, particularly with all of the sort of the new discussions that we're having at the moment about moving competitions to winter and trying to align the pyramid and all those sorts of things like that's really good stuff it's stuff that the community wants and the fact that he's listening to us we finally have someone at FFA who's listening to us is really exciting mm, very well uh, 
Sam. Um, Stolich, I want to come and bounce to you off the back of that. Uh, and, and I think that what James has done in, in a short period of time has been immense. And, um, and he's been thrust into a very difficult scenario because when he arrived, he certainly couldn't have predicted the pandemic. No one could have. And the repercussions that that would have on the game. Of course, there, there have been some, you know, causes to celebrate now with the news that Fox will continue to broadcast it, but it is at a reduced cost, which will have a significant impact on the salary cap and, and the way that the the players are paid. Um, I certainly believe that there was no chance in hell that they could have scrapped women's football at a time when we are making a bid for a Women's World Cup. That's certainly something that they couldn't risk, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And the changes that we're all advocating for and we'll, we'll hope to see in the short term to the medium future, uh, you know, it's going to be a real test of his, um, you know, of his position and, uh, and, and they will be held accountable if we don't start to see some more structural changes within the game, because I think the pandemic identified for a lot of us things that we'd already known, but it put them under the microscope and it made us all aware that we need to start making these changes in Australian football if we hope in hell to progress. Um, it's really important. But uh, some of your reactions, of course, um, to the news that potentially the game could move to winter, you know, is it viable? Is it something that, um, you know, would represent a growth for us or could it symbolise our death? Big question. Um, <laughs> I... I like the move to winter. I, I think it's a great idea. I mean, this season there was a game where Western United played Newcastle Jets at 5 p.m. and it was 40 degrees and there was no one there and the players didn't want to be there. No one wanted to be there. No one wanted to watch it because no one wanted to. No one wants to watch people suffering basically to try and play football. So it was there was no atmosphere. It was a terrible game and and that kind of examples of that are reasons why it just doesn't work in those temperatures. So that's that's one thing. Two, uh, two, I think it's good that we go to winter. Football is played in winter all around the world. It's just a more natural place. I think it's a better experience for both the fans and for the players. So that's going to be good. So I think the product's going to be improved. The big thing to worry about is stadium availability, ground availability, how they're going to approach all that. Going to have to find alternatives, especially to Bankwest Stadium for the Western Sydney Wanderers or um, Amy Park in Melbourne. Those are kind of the two big ones. Suncorp Stadium in Brisbane. Brisbane Royal shouldn't be playing there anyway. They should get out. They should see this as an opportunity to get out. Um, but yeah, so there's going to be a big problems in terms of ground availability ability and pitch quality because of course if you have so many sports playing at the one time on the pitch, that's a big worry. But uh, So I, I think the move is good. I just think obviously... We need to be smart about it in the same way that, you know, if, if we win the rights to host this World Cup, we need to be smart about it. We need to maximize it. We need to make sure moving it to winter isn't necessarily going to make it work any better than it was in summer. It's just it gives it an opportunity if we play our cards right, if we re-engage the fan groups, if we make sure that there's a, a really it's a great atmosphere going to the A-League, if we make sure that the players have the best chance to really kind of improve the product because i remember even lucy you did an interview with simon cox uh from the wanderers who obviously just come from england and he said if we played if the you know english teams played in this heat there's no way we'd have the same pace as we do in like the championship which you know the championship is known for being very up and down the pitch and that's one of the reasons it's so Half exciting the game, baby you got a graft if you're playing in the championship right. yeah but exactly but you know even like you think of a club like liverpool right this gergen press the to Gergen press in the A-League in the heat of summer is nearly impossible because you just cannot sustain that amount of output physically over 90 minutes in 35, 36 degree heat. So it's a worry. Um, but uh, so that that's why I'm hopeful that it's a good move. And I think it's great. I also think, and I just, just want to say this, I just saw uh, on Twitter that 800,000 people or 800,000 and 
803,436 people have registered their support for the world for the our World Cup bid, which is great, right? As one, and I think that's fantastic, and it just shows how much the football community is uh, committed to this. But if we don't win, those 803,000 people should not just go, okay, all right, well, that's it. The fight continues. The fight continues for women's football. The fight continues for Australian football. If you are committed to this bid, don't, okay, it would be absolutely horrible if we don't get it, but we don't stop. We don't give up. We will go to Colombia. We'll go win the tournament in Colombia, first of all. We'll lift the trophy and we'll say, that was for beating us in the bid. But we make sure that we continue to support the game in every aspect, that we continue to help grow the W League, help grow the A League, help grow grassroots. Because this game, it, there's not one part of it that needs to work. The whole thing needs to work. And everything benefits from every other part getting stronger. So that's what I just very well said, Stolish, but we need all of those parts to start talking to each other, Sam. We need more, and I hate this word because it's become such a buzzword that's thrown around, but we need more unity. We need the member federations to start, you know, reacting and acting, um, you know, in accordance to what's going on with the professional game. We need everyone to align um, for the greater good of the game. Um, and like I said, it feels like it's just a buzzword that we all throw around now quite flippantly, but it is something that we're in desperate need of. Um, but, you know, this whole idea of switching to winter where do you sit on it is it economically viable and again i'll ask the same question would it represent our growth or could it symbolize our eventual death well i, I sort of need to come at it from a women's football perspective um, so when it comes to the w league i think that the, the the w league sort of needs to become first of all a, a home and away season it needs to expand there needs to be more teams and it needs to move towards becoming a fully professional competition um, when it comes to the way that the W League would fit in with the A League in terms of a winter switch at the moment, my gut feeling is that it won't move to winter. I know that it's been reported in some places that it, it might be, but I think that was a misinterpretation of, of the, the announcement. I think for the, for the time being, the W League will probably stay as a summer competition um, in order to give at least Fox Sports year-round Australian football. So when the A-League is on during a winter season, we then have the W-League towards the end to go across the end of the year and back into summer. Um, but I, I think for, I mean, it's sort of at the point now where we sort of, we're, we have an opportunity to experiment, right, with these sorts of major structural changes to football. We saw sort of, we've seen what, what playing in summer is like. Like we have that evidence for us now. We know that the product suffers. We know that fans don't want to go because it's too hot. Um, all this sort of thing. So, you know, why not? Why not just give it a go? Particularly at the moment where international calendars are having to move quite significantly anyway to fit in the Qatar World Cup. And I think that was sort of referenced in the media release for the, the sort of the, the new broadcast deal and the possible winter switch as well, is that we're actually in a really flexible period of time now where we can move things here and there and see how we go. And I think, you know, Nick is absolutely right that, you know, football is a winter sport. It's, it's a winter sport for all of us. All of us play football in the winter. That's what we know. That's what we love. So being able to align that grassroots winter competition with the professional leagues through a winter, through a, a winter A-League or, or a winter W-League, if it gets to that, I think will only probably boost the game in terms of the, it's the interest in the, the professional leagues. And it's also going to align things like the NPL. And if we're wanting to have discussions about, a second national second division and promotion and relegation between that division and the, and the A-League or the W-League, that's going to have to happen anyway. So I, I sort of feel like a, a switch to winter is inevitable, 
Um, I think perhaps the, the men's and women's leagues are going to be a little bit more staggered in terms of the way that they approach it, because obviously the women's game and the men's game are at very different points of the, their history. Um, but ultimately, I think it, it can only be a good thing. Um, but also when it comes to the, the issue around stadiums, I think we've sort of discussed this before, where a lot of the stadiums that are used in the A-League are already unsuitable. A lot of them are too big. They're really expensive. Some of them are sort of difficult to get to. We almost sort of need to go back to, you know, old sort of NSL, early A-League era where we had smaller stadiums. We had stadiums that could produce really good atmospheres, 15, 20,000 people, not a huge amount. But by producing that sort of atmosphere, by making sure that we have the best possible product to present to broadcasters and to present to the unconverted fans who are watching at home, that's how we build the game out from that particular perspective. And that'll the ripple effects of that will bleed into grassroots, it'll bleed into interest in national teams, it'll bleed into everywhere. So again, like you said, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of all of football stakeholders coming together and agreeing on a particular vision and a particular understanding of what we want to be and how we want to fit into the world. And once we come to that agreement, I think we can start to move forward together. I think very well said, first and foremost. Also, um, you know, alignment is the big thing for me. Aligning with Asia, aligning with, as you said, their grassroots football, the MPL. I mean, we're in a situation now where coming out of the pandemic, we have the opportunity, as you articulated there, Sam, to make these changes and to be more flexible and reactive to the demands of football now and the evolution of it um, in Australia. And historically, I think we've made a lot of mistakes, that's clear. But now an opportunity has presented itself for us to be able to try and use this is a catalyst to drive the game forward and to make the necessary changes. I just don't know how it would impact, you know, the likes of media coverage. A lot of a lot of people have cited that as a real reason. But at the end of the day, we're not getting the media coverage from the mainstream media as it is. Uh, you know, when, when you're flicking through the, the pages of the paper, this is prior to the pandemic hitting. Remember, bear in mind that the AFL and the NRL were on hiatus at that point because their seasons were, you know, they were already been completed. I was still looking at the back pages of the paper and seeing discussions about NRL players and about their movements in the offseason and what was happening and I'm thinking but we've just had the, the the Sydney derby or we've just had this happen in the A-League and and look we can't as James Johnson said we can't keep concerning ourselves with other codes because I think that's been to our detriment in many ways we're trying to draw on these comparisons and argue that well we are the global game we are the global game so we have to start using that to our strengths and not as something that you know is used as, as a fighting tool in a war against the other codes but uh you know moving Moving to boutique stadiums, I think, is really important. I think we've already seen that, uh, you know, from Sydney FC's perspective, for example, going across to Jubilee, it has harked back to the eras of, you know, the NSL days when we, we started to see the stadiums filled with people and, and the atmosphere makes such a difference in terms of attracting crowds, getting bums on seats. You know, our, our football fans are unique across any code. I don't care if you've got a packed house at the MCG. I would guarantee you that you'd have a far better experience at a 15,000-seat stadium for a Sydney derby. So, you know, th there are a lot of positives to draw from this. I, I just don't know. I'm, I'm always in two minds about it because I can see both sides of the coin um, and how it could represent a real challenge for us. I think the sticking point stolage could be about broadcasting rights and how you would start to sort of negotiate that and, and sell that to a broadcaster that's A, going to invest a lot of money because we need to, we need to grow from here, right? We can't continue to go backwards, which is why I was so against even the idea of 11 million being tabled by Fox. That would anchor us to a terrible deal 
and would send a bad message to the, you know, the remaining broadcasters who could potentially secure the rights down the track. But how could that impact things? Could that be the sticking point, do you feel? I mean, I think the key right now is to improve the product and get the product to such a good spot where multiple broadcasters, whether they be your linear kind of television channels or your more kind of modern streaming services like Optus and Netflix and whatever else, really want to invest. That's the key. If your product is kind of crap, and it's not crap, but it's definitely declined uh, recently, then that's why we don't have no other bidders. The problem is not so much that Fox wants to get out. The problem is that no one wants to come in, and that's that's the big issue. But I think I think you're right about you know the mainstream media. I've heard that kind of brought up a lot that we're not going to get that coverage. The thing is that people need to realize is that in media, every major newspaper and every major television channel, and every major show more or less is run by old white dudes and they don't care about football. They care about rugby league and cricket and AFL and that's okay. Let them have their sport, do their thing. But the, we, our game is much more diverse. It's much has a younger audience. It has a much more, you know, not the type of people who run media companies. So that's why me, modern kind of mainstream media is always going to be behind the actual trends and that actual what people are interested in. And so that's what, that's what I think is going to happen there. I think football will become popular in Australia much more before you'll see it actually win the mainstream media being reported. And then eventually as a result, they'll start reporting on it because people are just interested in it. So that, that's one thing I think to say, but yeah, in terms of broadcast, they do need to come up with a plan. They've got 14 months. It looks like Fox is going to pull out once this second season finishes and they need to work out if they create their own streaming service and, and sell that as a subscription model, if they get a, and I think they need to have a free to wear partner in that to make sure that the game is accessible, at least one game a week, preferably your best game. Yes. SBS, but <laughs> I think wherever you go, it must be treated with respect because one thing that I was personally very disappointed with is the fact that ABC have the rights to the A-League, have the rights to the W-League, have the rights to Matildas, Socceroos, everything. They didn't say anything about um, this pay deal that was going on for the last month. They've been completely silent on it. They don't seem to have an interest in the game. Now, they don't report on it. They don't. So it, to me, it's extremely frustrating that, you know, the ABC, and I love the ABC, and I very, uh, feel very sorry for the people who lost their jobs there, and I think they do an outstanding uh, job, you know, nationally for all the programs they do. But when it comes to football, I think they don't do a good job. I think they don't put enough effort in, and, and I think it's poor reflection as your free-to-air broadcast. And I think whoever broadcasts it does need to give it that respect and does need to give it that platform. I couldn't agree more. I think it deserves some love. And to elaborate on that, I think one of the most disappointing things that I've identified in the arrangement with ABC is that they haven't produced their own productions in terms of getting talent, getting people involved in a studio to actually talk about the game. Uh, just taking Fox's feed, it's not a good look. Um, it's not a good look to build the profile of your own organisation and it's not a good look to build the profile of the game and, and those that are heavily invested in it. So really well said there, Stolich. One point I have to make before we move on to our final topic and wrap up the show is that when we consider the impact of mainstream media, we also have to consider why it's not in their interests to talk about football, right? And a lot of it has to do with the fact that these major corporations are investing in the likes of rugby league and AFL and cricket. So, of course, they're going to dictate what's get, what gets written in their papers. And to give you an example, we here at SBS, when would we have spoken about basketball before we acquired the rights? Never really. So, you know, we've got to think about these things a little bit more rationally 
internationally, I know that sometimes we can get bogged down in believing that, oh, everyone's against football, you know, they're run by white guys, they don't care what we do, it's not, but it's not in their interest to promote the game because they don't have any skin in the game, they don't have money in the game. So I can guarantee you now that if Channel 9 or Channel 7 did have the rights to it, you would start to see it pop up more in mainstream media. And that's part of the problem. It's that the game has been sequestered behind a paywall for the last 15 years and spitball between SBS and ABC and never had a consistent home on a free-to-wear partner. Uh, and, and I think that's part of the major problem here. So when we talk about growing the game, I think that eventually, yes, Fox's involvement does need to come to an end and they do need to start exploring other avenues for how to broadcast the game to more people and more Australians who can have access to it. That's certainly one one way and an important way to grow the game. So these are just some little tidbits. Your I, well, I agree with you on that, that I definitely think that's a thing with the, um, you know, News Limited, I think owns part of like the Broncos and they have a massive stake in rugby yeah. league. So that's why News Limited papers are always talking about rugby league. But uh, I think the thing was we saw Channel 10 have the rights to the A-League and you, they barely did anything around it. I didn't really ever see the project. <laughs> the feed that's but all that, they did and that's the thing and they had a you know a stake in the game and you thought okay you're going to promote it are we going to see it talked about on your shows like the project and all your other kind of you know i don't know their morning show whatever i don't really watch channel 10 since they lost the symptoms but you know it just it, i think the thing is sometimes we think okay the that's what i mean these whoever wherever shows it needs to give it respect and respect means but they didn't stolage that was exactly problem they didn't they again they did what abc have done they just took fox's feed and they slapped it on air they didn't give it any promotion or any love if they had invested a hell of a lot of money which what we're talking about when it when it concerns rugby league for example i mean channel nine they've pumped in close to a billion dollars you know in conjunction with fox this is a hell of a lot of cash so it is in their best interest to promote the product it wasn't in channel 10's interest to promote the product they didn't have to because to them it was just a, a, a way to broaden broadcast an offering and just to have it there on a channel without having to create any work around it I think that's part of the problem too yeah and so I think you know ideally going forward we would like to see whoever is in charge of broadcasting it really give it the love and respect it deserves and I believe that they can do that because every channel in this country does well at broadcasting at least one sport so let's see it for the other sports and also, I want to say that's ABC's television coverage, not their radio coverage, which their radio coverage is quite good. I know a lot of people work, uh, do a lot of hard work there, and they've been broadcasting radio-wise for a long time, and they do a very good job because I wish there was actually more radio commentary uh, in this country. I think we can all agree that we're just very passionate about the game and we want to see it given the justice that it deserves. Yes. Speaking of justice um, being given here, we have to give credit to our beloved colleague, Craig Foster, who very sadly uh, has made the decision to move on to far greater challenges. Um, I feel like he's certainly outgrown his mission here with SBS over the last 18 years. His service has been immense. Uh, yesterday was a hugely emotional day for both myself and Foz in particular because the two of us uh, sat down in a room and started to, to kind of sift through the sands of time and of his career over the last 18 years. And it was very emotional because it was, it, you know, there was so much in it. Um, and also when you consider his relationship with, with Les and Johnny and then Les uh, after Johnny had passed, uh, you know, some really wonderful but also painful memories to relive. Uh, and we will be able to show that interview. I think they're, they're, they're producing it up for Friday. Is that right, Stolich? That's the, the agreement? It's uh, No, you don't know? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm on the night shift tonight, of course, covering the beard, but I'm sure whenever it will come out, uh, it will be great. 
and uh, I'm looking forward to watching it myself. And yeah, very, very sad day. Someone asked me today, oh, are they going to replace Foz? And I said, how could you replace Foz? How could you, like, what, even if you hired someone else, you can't replace Foz. You could, if you hired a thousand people, you couldn't replace Foz. You can't uh, replace someone who has that level of integrity, who commands that level of respect, both not only, you know, externally, but internally amongst the staff, amongst the thing. He is the most selfless person I've ever met. Uh, the amount of hard work that he does that you don't know about, that you don't see behind the scenes that, you know, and I'm talking about making, there are times where football has been on SBS because of the work that Foz has done behind the scenes, Never mind uh, in front of the camera. So uh, I think everyone in Australian football uh, owes Foz a gratitude. I think he's an example to follow the fact that he, you know, he doesn't just say these things and doesn't follow it up. He, housed a peruvian homeless kid a week ago he said oh you don't have a place to stay come stay at my house not oh here's some money you know try sort yourself out i will support you that's guy fozzy's it's unbelievable like what he is as a person yeah he's an example for all of us to follow i personally owe him everything uh, i've known him since i was 14 uh he's been nothing but incredible to me and without asking anything in return so it's very rare to find someone it's impossible to find someone like that uh elsewhere and i'm just so glad to have known him and worked with him and uh it's it's been an incredible time and whatever he goes on to do he will be successful and i can't wait to see what it is because we have benefited sbs australian football has benefited from him but now someone else is going to benefit from him now another organization will and i'm going to just be jealous of them <laughs> basically that's a good way to summarize it well said Stolich. um sam some acknowledgements uh, for foz there and memories of him over the last sort of period that uh, you were certainly aware of i mean I, I couldn't really summarize it better than that to be honest but i like he he was part of my football moment you know he was he was there doing the commentary in 2005 and i and that's sort of the moment that i became aware of who he was and why he mattered and over the years, as he's become more vocal in terms of his involvement with the PFA, in terms of his involvement with SBS, doing all this stuff for football behind the scenes, as Nick said, that's where, that's where all the work happens. And a lot of those people really never get the kind of recognition or the acknowledgement that they deserve for the kind of effort, the energy, the passion that they put into all these kinds of things. It's, it just so happens that Foz is a, a public treasure and we all know and love him because of who he was and the roles that he has played across football, on, like on and off the screen. And not just that, but his, his, his sort of work over the last 12 to 18 months, his engagement with human rights, using football as a platform to talk about social issues, that is what football is about. Craig Foster is football for me. And he's football for so many people. And he's going to continue to be an incredible icon and representative of what our game can produce, whether he stays in football or not. You know what, I've, um, I've blubbered enough in the last sort of week um, since I've known that Foz is leaving us. Uh, so I'll leave it on that note. Um, I, I certainly have, have struggled to articulate how I'm feeling about all this because, um, sorry. No, no. Yeah, let's just say Lucy did a great job oh. yesterday with her uh, piece that you can go read on the World Game website talking about, uh, you know, what she's learned from Foz and the incredible experience that it's been. And I, I, I was emotional 
reading it. Uh, so I can't imagine what it was like writing it. Yeah, thanks um, for covering my ass, It took me about four hours to write the damn thing. It's only 700 words, which ordinarily I could bang out in uh, about an hour, but um, that was really tough because I had to pause to sob repeatedly uh, as I was getting through it. But, um, you know, such is the impact that he has had on our lives, on everyone's lives, whether you knew him personally or just from watching him on, on the screen. Uh, he's He's been a giant of the game. And I think somebody that, um, you know, when we were talking yesterday, I think he... He identified that that Johnny Warren was the football icon and Les was the cultural icon, whereas I feel as though the two have been married into one with Foz and he's been a representative beautifully for both. Um, uh, and he's just, he's a wonderful person. He's an incredible father to his three children, a, a, a fantastic husband to his wonderful wife, Lara. Uh, you know, he's supported us so much here at SBS and our time with him uh, will be dearly missed, although we know that he will be around. Um, that's one of the key things I said. Well, tonight... You better bloody come back, right? Um, irrespective of what you go on to do, even if it is as the prime minister of the country, uh, you will come back and you will host the, you know, the Qatar 2022 World Cup with me, whether you like it or not, far out. Um, but, you know, he's just an incredible man and the tributes that we've seen from everybody has been flowing through. Uh, and, and you know, one thing that I have to say about SBS that I've always loved, it's been a really difficult time for a lot of us emotionally um, since, uh, you know, we've had all of these giants of the game leave us. Uh, Johnny Warren, Les Murray, now Craig Foster are, uh, in many ways, it symbolizes the end of an era. And I think that's why this has been such an emotional period for all of us. But one thing I do love about our team is that we are like a family. I know a lot of people say it, but we genuinely have so much love and affection for one another. Uh, you know, Foz is a brother to me, effectively, and, and he'll be in my life for the rest of my life. So that's really wonderful to know that. Um, and I think it's very rare, particularly in this industry. So we hold that very near and dear. And, and that's why I'll put that out there as a caveat when you have to look at me blubbering tomorrow um, as well, because I just... I, I've made a habit of blubbering in front of the Australian public um, because of the game and because of my love for my colleagues. Guys, that is all we do have time for today, of course. It's such an important day uh, for Australian football, but for the Australian community, for the Australian nation um, and for New Zealand also, who very, um, you know, graciously joined us in this bid to host the uh, the 2023 Women's World Cup. Uh, we hope that it's a historic moment for us for all the right reasons. We, of course, are crossing our fingers and our toes in anticipation. Um, for those of you that have been asking about our coverage and what we are doing for it, um, live from 1.30 a.m., Eastern Standard Time, both myself and Foz uh, will be joining you via a live stream to talk about in the build-up to the announcement, uh, you know, all of the uh, the things very similar to what we've discussed here, but to get Foz's views on the impact that this could have for Australian football, for the, you know, the impact it could have on the women's game. There are so many things for us to discuss. And of course, lessons learned from the disaster that was 2010, uh, plenty of issues to talk about there. So please do join us uh, from 1.30am Eastern Standard Time here live on Facebook for the stream, and then we will point you to uh, to the announcement stream, which uh, I know that some of you have been saying uh, you can find on the FIFA YouTube channel. Um, we're working on, on, on delivering that platform to you also, hopefully mm -hmm. via the World Game website as well, but stay tuned on that. And then from 8 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time, both myself and Foz will be in the studio. We've got Claire Polkinghorn lined up to chat to us. Whichever way the decision goes, we're looking forward to hearing from uh, one of our beloved Matildas uh, and, and getting her reaction and feedback. And of course, it will be one of the, the last times before I make sure I drag Foz 
kicking and screaming, I'm sure, back into the studio at some point to join us again. But uh, it's an opportunity for us to send off Foz and hopefully with some good news in the bag. So, guys, yeah. thank you to all of you for joining us um, on the stream today. Also to FFA Chief Executive Officer James Johnson, who joined us earlier. For those of you that missed it, you can catch the stream later on demand. Um, and for all of the stories that we have discussed, of course, go to our website. We've got some fabulous opinion pieces at the moment. There's a podcast with uh, Heather Garriock and uh, our resident SBS World News sports reporter, Adrian Archuli, doing the rounds as well. Um, he's talking to Heather about, you know, the Women's World Cup bid and just how fabulous it would be if we were able to secure it. Sam, our absolute genius uh you know it's always such a delight to catch up with you the fans just adore you your passion is uh you know it's contagious and your knowledge of the game is just it's so valued here at sbs and and we're looking forward to hopefully celebrating with you come tomorrow morning as well likewise and i would just say to everybody that if we don't win it don't give up on the women's game come to the w league buy memberships, buy tickets, buy merchandise, because women's football here is going to take off regardless of what happens tonight. So please don't give up. Football needs you. The game needs everyone at this point. Um, we're looking hopefully towards a brighter future for both the men's and women's game coming up. Stolich, great to see you, my friend. Always a job well done and thank you for your contributions today. Thank you. And I would just like to tell everyone to tune in tonight at 1.30 on Facebook because if we win, it's going to be fantastic to see Lucy and Foz's reaction and we can all celebrate together. But if we lose, you're going to see one of the all-time great rants. Uh, they're going to be at 2 a.m. These two, if we don't get this bid, it's going to be epic. It's got, I'm going to have to get the sensor butter going. I'm telling you, if you want to express your anger, that's going to be the place to do it. All right? Don't go to bed. Don't give up. We're going to hear it. So either way, obviously we want to win and that's going to be great. But I'm telling you, if we lose, the one silver lining will be the rant that Lucy and Foz are going to give. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that you want to hear that. By the way, either this is going to get, it's going to get consumed or it's going to get smashed. So <laughs> out of 2 a.m., what happens to this bottle of Moe, all right? Because it will end up somewhere it, it, either in inside me or outside of me. So we're looking forward to it, guys. We hope that we can crack this open and really celebrate it. I've got it waiting there for us at 1.30 slash 2 a.m. Um, guys, thanks so much for your company. We hope you're all staying well during this period. A lot of excitement on the horizon for us, hopefully here in Australian and New Zealand football. So take care. And until then, uh, on behalf of myself, the entire team at the World Game, it's goodbye for now. We'll see you again very soon. <laughs>